a really quick and exciting announcement to make. The Menopause and Cancer podcast is now also on YouTube, and I'm so excited that more people now get to watch our conversations. So the link to the YouTube channel is in our show notes. Please go and subscribe to the channel so that more people who need to hear our conversations are able to find them. Thank you. Hi, I'm Danny Bennington and welcome to my podcast. This podcast is for anyone who's been affected by cancer and menopause. I'll be speaking to special guests and menopause experts to help us find solutions to our symptoms and of course address the greater picture. We're going to talk about everything from mental health to physical health, sexual health to bone health and everything in between. Nothing is off limits. Welcome. Welcome to the second episode of our Menopause and Cancer podcast. I've got a super special guest for you, Carly Musa. Carly is a wellness coach and writer, and Carly and I have got a very similar diagnosis. We've both arrived in menopause through similar ways. And the reason why I wanted to get Carly onto the podcast so early on is because we've both chosen to manage our menopause in very different ways. And I want to highlight that and I want to celebrate it because it is really important to create a space that is judgment free. There is no this or that approach, I believe, when it comes to menopause care. And when you are facing with how to manage your menopause after a cancer diagnosis, it's very rarely black or white. And we need to look into all the different nuances of and all the shades of gray, really. And although our cancer diagnosis was so similar, Carly's experience and her history and everything that has happened for her up until she was diagnosed was totally different to all of my experience and my history. And that is exactly why our decision-making process is different and we're all wired in different ways. And I think it's really important to highlight that from early on so that we all have a bigger acceptance towards one another and that we can just learn from each other's stories and move away a little bit from that comparison approach. Carly and I are also talking about wanting our old pre-menopause or pre-cancer self back. And what do we do if we don't really like who we have become? I can't wait to dive into this episode. Let's welcome Carly in. Welcome, everyone. I'm here with the absolutely gorgeous Carly Musa. Carly, you're a wellness coach, writer and breast cancer advocate a breast cancer survivor as well. And I can't wait to chat to you. Uh, hi, Danny. Hi, everyone. It's fantastic. I can't remember how we met, but it was social media, probably a long time we, ago now. Yeah, we definitely connected, I think, through Instagram. And then we just started messaging one another. And yeah, I did your amazing course. And so today, why I really wanted to get you on and why I really wanted to get you into the podcast early on is because... Your story has two really key learnings for me and for all of us. And the one is that we have similar journeys in terms of what cancer, what diagnosis, even the genetic mutation, but you'll tell all of us. And we've decided to do different things right now. And yeah. I want to highlight it's totally okay. Yeah. And that this is a space where we are judgment free and full of compassion, understanding for one another and our differences. And the second one is I love when you talk about finding your new self because I hated my post-cancer post-menopausal self for mm. quite a long time mm. and so would you that's mind? so common isn't it yeah we'll talk it about so that 
So it's those two things I wanted to really bring out in our chat. So can you tell us what happened when you were first diagnosed? So, yeah, I was diagnosed in December 2019. So two and a half years ago. And I found a swelling under my armpit. I didn't actually find a lump in my breast. And I happened to be on a chemo ward of all places with my older sister who had been diagnosed five months earlier with ovarian cancer. After her diagnosis, she had tests to look into. She was only 43, I think, at the time to see if she had carried any gene mutations. And it picked up that she carried the BRCA1 gene mutation. So we share a dad. We don't share a mum. So it was, yeah. So basically, I would think I was planning on testing and seeing if I also carried the gene mutation and didn't get around to it because cancer kind of came along sooner than I ever thought it would um and I was 37 um it was a stage two grade three triple negative breast cancer tumor that had spread to my lymph nodes which I think is very similar to your diagnosis right yeah so how old were you did you say when 37 yeah so I was 33 I found a lump it was like a big cherry um I was groping around in my armpit and there there it was I didn't know anyone in the family with breast cancer, but we've got really strong ovarian cancer also on Mm. the dad's side. And mine was stage one, so no Mm. lymph node involvement, grade three. So similar experience in our 30s, isn't it? And triple negative, was it? And a triple negative as well, yeah. Yeah, Yeah. Mm. which obviously for anyone listening that maybe doesn't know what triple negative is, it just, it's, um, there are loads of different types of breast cancer, aren't there? And some are fed by hormones and some aren't. And ours just, they don't really know what feeds it, but it's very common if you carry the BRCA1 gene mutation, which then makes getting breast or ovarian cancer your chances are a lot higher. So I was obviously diagnosed with that, but my mum had died of breast cancer 10 years earlier. Not not BRCA1 gene mutation related. She, hers was hormone positive. And I guess in a way important for the purposes of this is that she was on hormone replacement therapy before her diagnosis. And a lot of uh, back then the doctors thought because she they, they did have breast cancer in her family her mum had also died of breast cancer there was a lot of talk of maybe the HRT had kind of fed her cancer a bit and kind of which of course no one will ever know no and, one will ever know no one will no. ever know but to for you I guess it's just I'm, I think I would important to say that because this is the, the narratives that I had carried with me for for you know that's exactly 10, what 15 I wanted years yeah That's exactly what I wanted to ask you, because when you are diagnosed, you are not just being diagnosed with you there and then as that person in that day. You're diagnosed with your whole history of everything that has happened up until that day. And what I think is so important is to for all of us to understand that how we're going to react and the choices we're going to make and the treatments we're going to accept and decline are also influenced by everything that has happened to us. Absolutely. I think that is Yeah, that is the most important thing to say, right? That every single person, even if you have the exact same diagnosis as somebody else, you know, down to everything, you're still going to have very different experiences because, I mean, my my sister's the first to say it. Um, she, She has what's called kind of a cancer email. People come to her, friends and stuff and say, you know, as is the way, and I'm sure you have it too. My friend's just been diagnosed. Do you, do you have any advice? And 
in it, she says, my sister and I were diagnosed at similar times and we approached things very differently. We did. Yes. Just different personalities. So you had two young children. You've yeah. got a lovely supportive husband. We yeah. spoke about him earlier. <laughs> we did. And you were thrown into lots of rounds of chemo. Yes. Yeah, so 16 rounds of chemo alongside an immunotherapy drug that had just been approved for um treating early stage triple negative breast cancer. It's been used in late stage, but this was kind of very new and I happened to just be able to kind of um, qualify for it, I think is the word. So yeah, so I was having immunotherapy every three weeks. To start with, I was having weekly chemos for 12 weeks, which about eight sessions in, lockdown happened. So talking of my supportive husband, it was suddenly not only had our lives changed eight weeks earlier with my breast cancer diagnosis, now suddenly we're all home, very nervous. You know, I was, um, what's the word? I can't even remember all the lingo that was used now. Oh, I was shielding, right? So that was it. (laughs) I was on this very vulnerable list and I was getting all these letters about how vulnerable I was when I already felt so vulnerable anyway, because I was neutropenic from the chemo. So my husband was incredible and very much um, did as much as he could in terms of with the kids and giving me time to rest still. Um, But yeah, so half of my chemos before lockdown where I had like friends and family come with me and then half were completely set alone in the chemo ward followed by radical surgery which I knew because I carried the BRCA1 gene mutation it was always going to be a double mastectomy I did the Dieppe flap re- reconstruction so that means I used my own tummy tissue mainly because I was so weak after the chemo that I really felt and so did my team that my body really might struggle with implants and um I did want reconstruction that was just something I felt I I did want from the start I know obviously some people choose again everyone is so different right some people remain flat some people do implants there's so many choices all along the way you're making so many choices all the time um it can become quite overwhelming so anyway so I had my Dieppe and then three weeks of radiotherapy and immunotherapy continued for a bit and I finished all my treatment last February After 15 wow. months. Yeah. Wow. And well done. So, thank you. And as, <laughs> thank as you, you know, once you finish treatment with triple negative, there is no pills to take after. You are just kind of left to carry on life and basically hope and pray, right? <laughs> and that's, that made me feel initially really, um, I was, it was really difficult. I, w- I felt I was deprived of a treatment that other breast cancer people with breast cancer were granted. And I Mm. thought, gosh, there is no follow-up treatment. I can't go on hormones that there is nothing. Now, obviously I'm talking, I'm nearly nine years on from my diagnosis. I know, which I love. I love. Which is, yeah. And I'm still talking about it. And, you know, it's still such a passion for me to really enable more people to to also see that there is life after cancer, Mm. but how, how does it change? But initially it was really hard for me not not having access to that treatment now I know how many people struggle on long-term hormonal treatments and how Mm. horrendous that time can be Mm. and Mm. many women say to me this time on maybe long-term hormonal withdrawal is harder than chemo radiotherapy and surgery together and so life doesn't stop with cancer treatment how was your mental health when you finished? So 
my mental health was at its worst, I would say, um, after my chemo and surgery. I think I have really was focused on getting through those two big things that by the time it came around to radiotherapy and still having quite a few more immunotherapies, I was a bit like, no, no, no. Like, I think I'm, I'm done, right? I felt like I, I should have been done in a way. And it all felt too much to kind of carry on at that point. I was just so physically and mentally drained. So I started to see an oncology counsellor at that time, which was life-changing for me. Um, he really, really taught me. I've had a lot of therapy, actually. Like, I'm very open about that since I was 12. I think I had my first therapist at 12. And I've had it at various stages of life where things have been quite challenging therapy. So it wasn't, he wasn't my first therapist, but he was my first that focused on compassion focused therapy. And it came just at the exact right time in my life where I was, I felt quite open to more spiritual practices and it felt quite spiritually aligned, this therapy. And yeah, it helped me so, so much. Um, when I finished everything last February, I think I was in quite a good space. And actually it was six months later that I felt I, we, we went away last summer um, to Spain and it was the first trip we'd done since before lockdown abroad you know it was the first time on a plane and somewhere we've, we've gone so many times and I think I struggled more so then with the whole I guess which we'll talk about the ghosts of who you were before it was so fresh in my head like who I had been three years earlier this person jumping into the pool at the time having cancer not realizing I had cancer so that was quite tough on on my mental health but then I came back and I took part in a trek for Copperfield, 100 kilometers in Scotland. And for me, that really felt like the, what's the word? Like, is it the beginning of the end? Like, I don't know. It just really felt like you can't put cancer in a box. Cancer didn't go in a box. But for me, it was like, oh, my body's like, it really just solidified that I, I can be okay. It's going to be it's going to be times, it's going to be hard, and I'm still going to have my scan worries maybe and things like that. And I get checked every three months and there's been various things still, but I felt like I had a new lease of loving life at that point and really and felt strength. like strength. Yes, and strength and trust in my body again, trust in yeah. my body massively. That really gave me goosebumps when you said you met the ghosts of your old self, because yeah. when I looked at photos, because I knew you then, and I remember yeah. you going on a holiday, and I thought, gosh, wow, Carly is so brave. There were photos of you in a bikini with your mm -hmm. scar, and you've got mm -hmm. a big scar is it on your tummy mm -hmm. yeah, because yeah. of your reconstruction. And I thought, wow, she's only just gone through this, and she's so brave to show this and to be okay with it well mm. I know you are not we're never entirely okay with it and showing mm. it doesn't mean you're okay with it mm. but you know it took me so many years to ever show anything like that yeah. like when I never showed my bald head because I wanted everyone or no one to know or when I was going through it and I could only talk about it later and again whenever anyone is listening thinking wow these two women they're talking about their experiences I can hardly open up to my family or you know let alone a counsellor there is no right or wrong we all process so differently That's it. at different times but did you love and like yourself who you were on that holiday or was it basically that first you know after a cancer diagnosis there's always a first that first Christmas it was that yeah. first going out what was how did you feel so my hair at the time my hair was incredibly short and curly still again it was the body changes 
I felt strong in myself and I felt like I had, you know, come through something huge. And I did, I'm very, I, I, I kind of am a big advocate of body gratitude. So I'm so grateful to my body. But whilst I was there, it was only a year since my big surgery. So I think it is like that. There is a grieving process. And I potentially was trying to fight against it. I felt so different. It's a very social holiday. We go somewhere where a lot of our friends go. And I stopped drinking when I was diagnosed. I cut out quite a lot of things when I was diagnosed. I kind of just followed what my older sister was doing. And she'd, she was um, diagnosed at such a late stage that she really, um, what's the phrase, threw the kitchen sink at it and read a book called Radical Remission. And, and so she was having such good results that I just went on the day I was diagnosed, like you want to just get any control you can get back. I just, whatever you're doing, I'll do it. Just tell me now, what do I need to do? So, so alcohol was one of the things that went and I had introduced it a bit again, but not, not to any level like I had pre pre-cancer and the summer before I'd got diagnosed. So I think there was just this thing of like, and I was really in my thoughts. I was really, cancer was so at the forefront still. I really, you know, every time I looked in the mirror with my very short curls, I just didn't feel like who I had been. And I was in that metamorphosis stage of being confident. It wasn't that I wasn't confident and it wasn't that I didn't have a good time as well, but I would just say that anxiety was quite high and there was also a lot of recurrences going on in the community at that at that time people that I was following in a way I guess like I started to follow you of stories of oh they're ahead of me and they're doing well and there were recurrences and there was so there was it at that point I was finding it really hard to not take other people's stories and experiences and and make them like this might happen to me. I, I feel like I've got a lot better and a lot stronger at that as well. But at that stage, it was all just a bit raw. And that's exactly what we talked about before, isn't it? Is the other stories we talked about, your mum's yeah. experience, your sister's experience, yeah. people in our community. I don't know how long it was for me from when I was first diagnosed up until today, where I had a single cancer-free thought day. I don't know, there weren't, there are some now, mm. yes but it took a long time mm. and when I wasn't actually actually and I'm going to swear now shitting myself yeah, yeah. that I was going to die really early from this disease mm. did you have those worries so absolutely and I again I, I can only speak from my experience of triple negative there's a lot about triple negative that I, I took as a positive I kind of felt like from what I was seeing it can really respond to treatment and mine did but at the same time also if it's going to recur it recurs sooner so I feel like there's a bit of a danger zone quite soon after you finish treatment right and I'm still in it in a way so there was that but especially the three months after and being away from my team and being away from my oncologist I think and I, again, I can only go by what people say to me. Some people that are further along have said, you, you are accepting your, your, your new experience or your new post-cancer self so much faster than I did. You're embracing so much, you know, they say, people say this to me. And so I don't have anything else to compare to, but I do have just my experience. And I can see that the who I am now, we're, we're getting ready to go again this summer. And I am so excited to go. And we went to LA in April and I was... It was the first time I was away and I was like, 
like you said, cancer was there. It will always be a thought. It will because I wake up and I see scars and my breasts don't just feel so weird and so heavy and so numb and so, you know, so you're dealing with this stuff every day and the menopause, which we haven't even got onto, you know, it's a we reminder. Will. We will, exactly. But I'm in the menopause because of cancer and because of having the BRCA1 gene mutation. So, and even in the bigger picture, I live every day with the fact that my mum isn't here because of this disease. So there is so much there. There is not going to be. I, I have accepted there will not be a day I don't think about breast cancer. But there also are things that it has given me that are, I think, have made me into a much more grounded, appreciative human being. I don't know. I, I'll try. I love, and that's why I love talking to you and so uh, many people follow you and love to hear what you say. I think this roadmap to healing is never linear, as no. we know, and there's also no timeline that we can expect. And so cancer treatment is often very, very much in a timeline. We have told uh, you have so and so many rounds of chemo and then radio. So we kind of have a finish lane in our mind, don't yeah. we? And then and then there is no finish lane. Then there's the life after cancer. And so you're expected to kind of like get on with it then. And this is where most people fall off a cliff. Mental yeah. health is at an all time low. And then people stop talking about it quite as much because, yeah, you're not going and having chemo every week or every few weeks or whatever your routine is. But it's so present for us and people around us, they've moved on almost. Mm -hmm. And for me, there seemed to be this real sort of jet lag. Like I was, everyone was going on and almost celebrating that I'd come to the end of treatment. And there I was crumbling to pieces. The the jet describing it as jet lag is so spot on. And I think I was feeling jet lagged last summer. So I'm I'm nowhere near. I, I just felt like I was like, my body was there, but I was somewhere else altogether. And so, yeah. And so how somehow I recovered better physically than mentally. And some mm-hmm. people are better mentally and their physical body takes much longer. Their scars or their strength mm. comes back mm. years later and they've got mm. loads of fatigue. So again, you can't really, this comparing doesn't help, does it? We can just sort of open our ears and see what other people have done, but not let those people's journeys sort of influence us too much, I think. Absolutely. Well, we like said we're all on such individual journeys we cannot be affected I, I sometimes get questions from people like you know how were you feeling at this point or even going back to the hair like how long was your hair at this point like uh, you know and it's kind of you, I, I posted a hair post recently and someone I'm really close to said oh I, you've um, inspired me I'm going to post my own hair post and she even in the post said my hair isn't growing as quickly as Cardi's like everyone is going to have such different experiences and we share our experiences because hopefully someone out there will go oh that's given me hope like especially with the hair stuff I used to look and think oh okay there's a shoulder length so mine might be around that time but it was always like might be you don't know what's going to happen right whether it's gonna grow back curly again or straight or this or a different color like yeah everything So when you found out that you then had the BRCA1 mutation, Mm -hmm. your sister had already been diagnosed with breast cancer. You've also had the diagnosis yourself. We have increased risks of more cancers, even after you've had cancer with the BRCA mutation. That's breast and ovarian cancers. Was it a no-brainer almost for you to have your ovaries out and to have a double mastectomy? Or was it a really big decision still? A double mastectomy... I feel like in the process wasn't even a thought. It was just like, take away breast cancer from my life. Please never bring it back. I don't want to even 
it's only since that I'm like, oh, I could have maybe just had the one breast. You know, there's all the options suddenly that come to mind. But I, I don't regret my double mastectomy at all. With the ovaries, it's different. I was, so when I finished all my treatment, I was just turning 39. And in, the, in your head, there's, there's this number, right? 40. Everyone kept saying, we do recommend having your ovaries out around the age of 40 if you've got the BRCA1 gene mutation. Before I was diagnosed, I have got two beautiful kids. I didn't know if I was done. I would have potentially loved the, the chance of having a third. So when I was having my treatment, I took a drug called Zolidex, an injection, to freeze my ovaries because I wasn't going to go down the IVF route at that point um, because I had two children. So I was like, I, I don't need to do anything like that. I'm so lucky. I've got two beautiful kids. If, if, if my ovaries don't come back to life after treatment, then I'll get, I'll deal with that when that happens. Right. So then treatment finished and my period did come back and I had a period and I felt like a 12 year old. So excited, like getting my period. I was like, Oh my God, this is amazing. Like maybe, maybe there's a chance I can squeeze in a child before I then have my ovaries out. And I didn't get another period for six months. <laughs> so then six months later, I got another one. And at this point, I was having conversations with my gynecologist and it was becoming a bit more like, it's a bit sluggish. Everything was a bit sluggish. I'm, you know, I, I think I was just slowly, slowly getting my head around the fact that maybe I, the third child was not going to happen. And I was feeling okay with that. And I can only say okay, because I feel like as a woman, if you want children, you're never fully okay with that right being taken, you know, that being taken away from you. But my, my gynecologist was, was and is so lovely and very much said, I want you to feel empowered going into this surgery. I can say what I would recommend. And I can say that I do think we should do it soon, but I um, don't want you to grieve like, more than more than necessary so I was thinking about it that was around November time and then in December time I was supposed to see him and I'd had a scan and the secretary called and it was like the day before I was supposed to see him and she said um he'd like to speak to you today and didn't give me any background and it threw me so much like the private number call and this this conversation I was like okay okay so she said so he'll call you this afternoon so I was like okay fine put down the phone and suddenly it was like oh my god he wants to speak to me a day early oh my god so he's seen something oh my god I'm like, like you know as as is it's probably the anxiety your you've had before everything. everything exactly everything suddenly is like he's found something and this is serious because why else would he want to speak to me a day early nothing logical said like maybe call back the secretary so I just sat in this anxiety space all day long being like the loop of it's going to be something. No, it's not. How can it be something? Like, I just had a scan. It's okay. Da, 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 da. So all of this all day. And then when I spoke to him, it was very quick to be like, oh, yeah, your scans are fine and everything's fine. I just And I was like, well, why didn't your secretary say you just wanted to bring it earlier because you had, a, you know, there was just, it was just a miscommunication. But he, in his head, he didn't even think it would bring up any anxiety in me. So, but what it did is made me realize that I didn't need that anxiety in my life. And I had the I had the power to have an operation that would take that away from me forever. And so in January, I had an oophorectomy, which I know you've had too, which removed my ovaries and my fallopian tubes and my risk of ever getting ovarian cancer. It's gone. So that's, that's what happened in January. 
One thought that comes to mind immediately is that anxiety is never rational and it never makes sense. It wasn't at all. And it's like, (laughs) and you have this kind of, yeah, like this outer body experience being like, you're not making sense. It's completely irrational. You've had, you know. But it makes sense in the moment. I know, I know, I know. (laughs) So at the time that you were going through the ophorectomy or around that decision-making process, you came on to the Trek Stop Menopause Programme, which is great, isn't it? It's a charity programme for people in their 20s and 30s where we help signpost, educate and inform about all of our options from medical to hormonal to non-hormonal to diet lifestyle. And just to highlight here, because it's so important to get the real nuances right, When I had my ophrectomy, it was five years after my breast cancer diagnosis, just because of when I found out that I was a carrier, when I chose to have my double mastectomy. And so I was also just about 40, 39. I had, but it was five years after. That made the bit difference. Yours was only a year after you finished treatment, or even less than a year after you finished treatment. Yeah, less. Yeah. And so I would say you have been on the program. We talked about menopause. We'll talk about writing a letter to your ovaries later when we talk about grieving and all of that. What was the information you had from your healthcare professionals, whether as your oncologist or your gynecologist, about the long term implications of you becoming menopausal at the age of 40? Mm -hmm. So I've got the most incredible team. I, I really am. Just so I I really think that they're all amazing and I really value everything they say my gynecologist in particular you know he he deals with this all the time right so he is really good at saying I'm a young woman who's having my ovaries out probably a decade or so before I should be fully menopausal and there are things out there that will really help me and help various side effects and give me a better quality of life like so he was very much filling me in on how like my skin might change and all the things I guess that he has sees a lot of women that maybe impact on them the most um from vaginal health and sex drive you know all of that stuff so he's really he was I felt like he was really honest with me and really really wanted me to have all my options and very much pro hormone replacement therapy from the get-go he always has been he said you know my period my my hormonal levels before I had my surgery my estrogen was back back up and had I not had my ovaries out I just would have gone along swimmingly with my estrogen levels that high so in his head he's like it makes let's just get your hormone levels back to exactly the same level they were before your surgery so he was filling me on that from the oncologist can I just for anyone listening um the conversation about hormone replacement therapy for anyone who's had a triple negative breast cancer is a little bit easier to navigate than for women who've had a breast cancer with um uh, hormone receptor positive but I'm sure all of our listeners know that but just in case anyone is at the beginning of the journey and has that ahead of them yeah exactly It's, it's so important to know that though right because because of triple negative we are not given any medicine to suppress our estrogen levels or anything like that so my body was starting to get back to periods and the hormones were increasing and everything was so and and no doctor no my oncologist even would not have done anything differently had I not had my ovaries removed my oncologist is a bit hesitant about hormone replacement therapy not because he thinks it's necessarily rational either but because 
from what I can gather, and I'm not the best at kind of remembering these conversations, I probably should take a notepad and pen. They don't have enough data, he was saying, of putting hormones back in. He would have no issue had my body just remained at the normal hormonal levels. And potentially because of my mum's history and my grandma's history. There's a lot of breast cancer in my family. Again, he's very honest about all of these conversations, but again, has always said it's quality of life. If you come to me after your surgery, and I think I've seen him since my surgery, if ever there's a, a problem, we will, we can absolutely look at, at HRT. And then I saw my surgeon and he too was like, you're a young woman who is in the menopause far earlier than she should be. So pretty much everyone is, is kind of either very... How long has it been now since your surgery? Five months. And what have you decided to do? So I had decided fully to go on HRT quite soon after surgery. I was like, I felt like I'd lost my mojo. I, I think I, I remember writing and sharing that. But things were really, really quite hard at the same time in my personal life for various reasons. And I was recovering from a surgery, which takes, you know, after everything that we'd gone time. through and um so I think that all all in all I was a bit all over the place and that was probably maybe five or six weeks after surgery so I decided to do that then I think from memory I saw my oncologist and we had and he was a bit more hesitant than he'd been before and actually since seeing him something has happened <laughs> and it's kind of seems to have all settled a bit because I think it's important for listeners to know that for me the biggest worry for me was always the mental health side of things from having my ovaries out I really got myself to such a good place with my mental health and you know very much looking at the bigger picture of physical mental and spiritual alignment I was nervous to kind of remove my ovaries and suddenly drop jeopardize it yeah, yeah jeopardize yeah I didn't know it felt it felt very daunting and very nerve-wracking there's a lot of mental mental illness in my family and so that was probably my biggest fear but actually I feel like more kind of like I said earlier grounded stable I feel okay and I don't know if it was with you we were having this chat where like sometimes I second guess it I forget I'm in the menopause now I haven't taken anything and I'm like should I feel okay am I missing am I missing something you know and it's kind of that but I think the very good thing is the door is open to it the door is always open to it it doesn't have to be a decision I take right now right now today I do not feel like I'm struggling with menopausal side effects. And Um, what's so brilliant is you and I have both had really good experience with our healthcare professionals. And it was actually what ignited me to do all this work, to campaign for people in cancer, you know, in menopause after cancer, because so many people have the exact polar experience Mm. to us. They have, they go into um, orthorectomies without any advice or without any follow-on care. And so we want to bridge that gap. And I know you're passionate about that as well. Yeah. And so you feel empowered to make the decision you've made because you've got options and we need options and we need hope that we can improve our situation should it get to the point where we need help with it. And it's important what you said to think, what is your biggest fear? And I think if we Mm. ask that, most people, if someone's biggest fear is recurrence. They will make a different decision. 
if your biggest fear is mental health, this will be on your radar. If someone's biggest fear is bone health or heart health, they'll have a different pathway to coming up with decisions. I went on to HRT the day after my surgery. So the way I was wired, I didn't even want to see how I would feel and what menopause would be like in surgery. I just decided that it was important for my health and long-term health to go on HRT. Mm -hmm. So I didn't even leave hospital without it. I put my first HRT patch on before I even got out of bed. Wow, yeah, amazing. And that that was all in conversation with my team, with my doctors. And, And so it's so important to talk about you know, we have the black and the white of the menopause conversation that is out there, right? And what people in, with a cancer diagnosis are faced is the thousand shades of gray yes. in between that black mm-hmm. and the white. And so although we've had a similar diagnosis, although we've had similar experiences, you know, the fact that I was five years on from my diagnosis would have made a difference. I was so less... Were your, were your periods fully regular again? And... They came back. Mine yeah. came back yeah. pretty much soon after chemo. They were really quite regular. I then had my double mastectomy. And then years later, I then decided to have the ophrectomy. And so, yeah, it's important to highlight, isn't it? It's the time when I was diagnosed. When was I having my ovaries out? By the time I had my ovaries out and I went on HRT, my fear of dying was less because I was more yeah. than five years on. Well, that's it. So right? and I think it, I it's important yeah. from a triple negative yes. point of view, five years is an incredible milestone, right? Because if your cancer doesn't return after five years with triple negative, it is so important to say that because other breast cancers, it's, tot- it's a different thing and it can come back much later on down the line. But we were kind of told that after five years, it's, it's unlikely to and you've come done back good- at all job to get to that point yeah Yeah. so the decision making process is the fact that I've had a double mastectomy made a huge Mm. it was a huge point in why I decided Mm. to go on hormone replacement therapy Mm. and yeah you are right I think the evidence isn't quite there and it's the same for any person and until the system and the NHS and all of our doctors are better informed and they have more studies. I do believe it's over to us. And mm-hmm. I've got to say, to when I talk to you and when I look at you and when I see your glowing, beautiful skin, I'm like, oh God, am I really missing? I, I should maybe get some of this action. <laughs> absolutely not. Absolutely not. <laughs> you but do look so youthful. <laughs> You're so sweet. But it's so important, isn't it, to really feel how am I feeling? What are my options? It's checking it. Honestly, it's so, I think the biggest lesson from all of this is just checking in more with yourself and checking in more with where you're at and where you're feeling and where your mental health is and your physical health is and what you can do to, to change if you're upset with something, right? Like, yeah. And not to judge anyone or anyone in the community. I think this is the biggest disservice the menopause conversation brings with it. Is mm, it's quite mm. a judgmental space. It's to HRT yeah. or not HRT. It's to, there is no such a thing, I believe. And you know, well, It's interesting have- you say that. I don't think it was meant at all in a judgmental way. So I'll say that first off. But I did post before having my surgery and um, someone had highlighted me to a beautiful saying about menopause being like the second spring totally a Japanese saying yes so I loved that and I was like oh I'm gonna take that on board I'm all about affirmations and approach it like that beautiful like I'm this this could give me a whole new new lease of like menopausal life (laughs) so I went into my surgery and I posted about it and there was one person that said oh yeah the menopause is awful 
So I, there's nothing beautiful about it. I think I'd written like, this is a beautiful way to look at it. And I first thought, oh God, have I offended that person by even imagining that this could be a beautiful thing. And then secondly, I was very much like, okay, but that's her, again, that's her story, right? And mm. she's maybe really struggling with it. And that, and I felt really compassionate towards her and her, her feeling like that. But I was very quick to be go back to, I am who I am and I don't know what it's going to be like yet, but I hope it is going to be beautiful. So I'm just going to tell myself it is, you know? And so again, I don't think it was a judgmental comment. It was more that it was just mm. some people, when you share, people do tell you your experience and that can yeah. impact, right? If someone says the menopause is awful and horrible and you're going to feel so bad and you're going to be sweating and blah, blah, blah. and it is like my medical menopause was not enjoyable during treatment but I also was on a lot of treatment so that wasn't enjoyable too but yeah you know. and it is important to really know that we don't know anything about people that's the yeah. only thing we know is we haven't yeah. got a clue and we don't always make decisions just based on statistics and when were you diagnosed and what were you diagnosed with yeah. like you said you know your mum leaving you when you were a young adult from breast cancer is going to have an impact on your decision-making progress and, yeah. and what you're deciding to do. And everyone has their own little universes yeah. and, and they keep us spinning. And, you know, we have women who go on HRT after a breast cancer that was hormone related. And mm. other people would think, absolutely, you are absolutely mental to do that. Mm. We mm. must find a space where we are all able to share okay. a, what absolutely. we do so we can learn from one another and what our rationale was, mm. because, Otherwise, we're going to alienate different groups and we're going to make it an even lonelier experience than it already is. Yeah. Tell me, you wrote a letter to your ovaries. What's that all about? <laughs> Sounds mad. <laughs> oh, that's me, though. <laughs> no, um, I wrote, I also wrote a letter to my boobs before um, I had the double mastectomy. I love to write, right? And I've always found it cathartic and throughout a lot of kind of things in my life, I've chosen to to write and to share and I guess it's just a bit of a dear diary like I wanted to thank them and I wanted to appreciate them and I really wanted to kind of reflect on that they were leaving me and it felt I think it's just a for me anyway it felt very symbolic to to as part of the grieving process to be like thank you you've really done an amazing job of like you know what you what you were there and I got two beautiful children and and my heart goes out to all those people who are in situations like yeah. ours without the family and yeah. I want to say that here because there yeah. are so many and it's, it's um, just my heart opens to all and that's of, it that all I, I, I'm with you there and I think I've actually found in a way one of the hardest things to to own as an individual is the fact that I grieve that I didn't have another child because you know your, my brain just goes oh my god you got two and so many people don't get the chance to have any but I also have to kind of you know acknowledge that that it's is okay. still yeah. it's so it, I, yeah and I fully fully also acknowledge how lucky I am that I have two children and those things are. can all coexist because what cancer really taught me is that so many different or emotions different everything can coexist it and does. it gets muddled up and yeah 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 well, I think in terms of even talking of the grieving of the ovaries like 
there was massive grief and there was massive relief, like all at the same time of, of having them removed, like along, all along, all of it from getting my breast cancer diagnosis, there's been joy and there's been pain and there's been love and there's been fear, you know, fear all there, all kind of doing a little dance, let's say. And how do we befriend our new self? Like what you said earlier, you know, I really changed my diet. I was throwing it all in and teetotal now for nine years. Will you believe it? But obviously that alienated me, right? Dinner parties, parties out. I was suddenly from the Austrian with a schnapps on a table. (laughs) I was suddenly probably a lot more calm and, you know, so change of personality hugely came with the changes I made, but the cancer also changed me. And I didn't like it always. And I still sometimes think, oh, how do we befriend and what do we do there? Gosh, Sarah, it's magic formula, I wonder. Um, for me, it's been it's been a real process, I think, to, and again, I would say the compassion-focused therapy played such a key part because it it just highlighted to me the importance of being compassionate to yourself. And I think I have never really given myself that permission. Like a lot of my issues over the years were always beating myself up, actually. Like I wasn't doing enough for others for this or worrying that I'd upset someone or like, obviously all those parts are still there. But when you're faced with the chance that your your body might kill you, literally, like you have cancer and it took my mum. So I have held her hand as she died from it. It's a wake up call in so many ways to, to kind of, well, for me anyway, it was to heal, to really deeply heal. And a lot of that healing involved learning to, to love myself and not, you know, and it sounds so simple, but even I guess just saying it still does feel, before my diagnosis, I was, I had a life coach and honestly, the one personal goal I had was to love my body that was it I had like a business goal as well but the personal goal was I want to love my body my body before it gave me cancer like my body was incredible like I had birthed two children it was you know all these things and it was just I just couldn't befriend it and I think so much of cancer when I tried to love the new me after it I was just so much more loving towards the new me so first and foremost I think that was that allowed me to almost be forgiving when things came up, like not loving my hair or not loving my new body shape. I put on so much weight, you know, all these things. It's so in, so interesting because when you Google or speak to people and what always comes up is many people after cancer and in menopause, because it changes you quite a bit or it can, yeah. you want your old self back. Yeah. And that was definitely me. I kind of wanted my old self back, but I wanted to be different because I was, you know, putting different lifestyle measures in place and stuff. But when I hear what you say really intently now is if you wanted your old self back, well, you weren't loving your old self then. You weren't loving your old body when everything was meant to be okay. And when I I look back and when I look back, my old life wasn't perfect either. I wasn't perfect. It wasn't all Rosie, and so I wonder whether that's a bit of a romantic view. And me too, through counselling, had to become aware that wanting your old self back, when you really look, do you really want your old self back? Or do you just want the version of you back where you're at less in less danger, at less risk? 
I think that's it. I think the biggest thing I wanted back, the biggest thing I wanted back was space in my head to not think about cancer all the time. Yeah. I really wanted to, you know, I would look at pictures. Yeah, I kind of wanted my long blonde hair again back on a superficial level, but I really wanted the Carly that just would go out and yeah, the, life wasn't perfect, but I wouldn't I'd drink and have fun and eat whatever I wanted down. and let my hair down. And there was never a thought like, oh, this lifestyle is unhealthy and may impact on me. You know, it was all just, it felt more frivolous. And I think there's just, again, it's just a process to get getting back to that and getting back to the thoughts not being so consumed by cancer. It's the same with all grief. When my mum died, I thought, will there be a day where I won't be overcome by grief of losing her? Like, And now I can think about my mum and talk about my mum without crying and without feeling sadness. I just feel so much love, you know. So grief is a journey that you have to go through. And I think people, when they're diagnosed, almost need to be aware. And maybe I had more awareness because of my mum and I saw her mental health suffer, suffer after her primary cancer diagnosis massively. I knew there would be no going back almost from the day. I was like, this is, there's a line. There's going to be before cancer and there's going to be after cancer. What, what, what really strikes me right now is that often we don't talk about the grieving process no. when you're going through cancer and you're surviving it. We yeah. grieve for people we have lost. Yeah. But we don't talk about grieving when you're going through cancer treatment menopause but even if people go into perimenopause naturally perimenopause naturally you can grieve the woman who you were the yeah. fertile woman and but I think and, sorry I don't mean to interrupt yeah Carry on. no Carry on. no no I think that was sort of my thought is that grief is a real thing that is attached to a diagnosis like that and grief is a process like you've just explained yeah I am really and maybe this is all the therapy and part of how I like to, to coach people, I really feel there's space to grieve. Grief is needed. And I'm not talking just the death of a person, even to the point we're talking about motherhood and how incredibly lucky there was a slight grief to, oh my gosh, like I, I can't just go to the shop anymore and get a, you know, get something from the news agents if I want like my life has changed there's there's certain things that happen in your life and that was the most incredible positive I'm not saying it in an uh, you know in this negative way like motherhood is the best thing I've ever done in my life and I am so so incredibly like I love being a mum but early on there was this totally period where I was like what the hell has happened like my life and my life has never been the same, but in a really good way. But there had to be a letting go of the pre-Carly that could like go clubbing and do whatever. And, you know, again, so I think that there's many, you know, if I think about like my life on a timescale, there's pre-Carly before her mum died, there's pre-Carly before kids, there's pre-Carly before cancer. So, but I think with cancer, there's just so much about fear of recurrence and real physical ongoing changes and mental ongoing changes and things like that so that it's a different you know it has those differences but I think allowing people the space to just acknowledge that they feel a whole plethora of emotions is so liberating yeah I often heard people say oh you've just got to accept what's happened to you or if, as long as you accept it all then you will be all right and I've got a bit of a problem with it really because in a way I feel 
if we, our, our expectation was aligned with that, it'll be okay. But often the expectation is sort of out of sync because we don't know what we can expect anyway or how we would be feeling. But if the expectation was, this is going to be really tricky. This is going to be life altering. You're going to come out the other end as if you put together a jigsaw puzzle, but not quite right. <laughs> like, yeah. I always feel my pieces were put together, but not quite right. Yeah. Um, if that was part of the expectation, it would be easier to become to come to a place of accepting some of those jigsaw puzzles, not all yeah. of them, but some of them. And and that's what we're here to share also, isn't it? It is a tough but journey. I think, I think that the acceptance, like you said, I think acceptance is the pinnacle of healing. I truly do. I think if you can, I even just did a post this morning about acceptance, like, so much of not staying in a state of anxiety or depression is just accepting that wow. right now this is how I feel and this is what the situation is and there's no it doesn't have to be after or before it's just now just now let things just be and then they will pass but it's when we're you know we want to rush a process or we want to get out of it or you know or we sit too much in the past all of that but I think like you said if you can have those expectations it will help you much quicker to get to an acceptance if you can if every person diagnosed is told in a really sensitive way you, you know I don't I can't even say it, like because I don't want to upset anyone but I read the most incredible book where it said talking of writing letters like write a eulogy to yourself I did I wrote a eulogy to myself to be like thank again like Thank you, Carly. Like, uh, you know, I, I, I think I treated you quite badly and uh, over, you know, so much of the time. But I'm going to try and do better now because I've got this chance. Like, and I think a lot of people that talk about talk do share from a cancer point of view, whether they're living with secondary or come through, there is this shift in perspective. There just is because you do wait. Sometimes I think people you can wake up to life and what really matters, right? Thank you so much. I've got nothing to add just goosebumps <laughs> no. and so much love for you <laughs> oh, I've got so much love for you thank you so thank much you. for having me Danny thank you Carly it's and for so all amazing. you do for all you do to opening up this conversation it's so important oh wow I just love talking to Carly today and it's really important for me for you to know how this podcast and how the future episodes are going to pan out so that you can decide whether it's right for you to drop back in or not. We're going to have different speakers on the podcast. Some of them are experts in their fields, menopause specialists, oncologists, surgeons, nurses. And then we're also going to have people like Carly on the podcast who share their own experience. And what I really wanted to show you with the conversation today is that, yes, we have had similar journeys, similar diagnoses, but we're doing things very differently and that is okay. And the other thing that's important to notice and what my biggest takeaway is really from the conversation with Carly today is there is never an end to this as such. It's a journey, it's a transition, nothing ever stays the same. And if we allow ourselves to keep an open mindset so that we think, okay, what I'm doing suits me right now. It serves me. I think I've made the right decisions. I'm going to keep an open mindset because maybe in a year or in, the, in a couple of years, I need to do something else. I might want to change the treatment I'm on, discuss that with my doctor, throw something else into the mix, take something away. And I think that fluidity is something that really has summed up my own menopause experience and my own journey. 
And I really, really, really love for you to rate, review and subscribe to this podcast. And if you have anyone in your community, in your friendships, in your family that might also benefit from it, then please share the episode. I've self-funded the launch of this first um, season. And so I'd really, really, really like for it to be heard by the people that need it the most. I know we're not a huge community, but I think we're a really powerful community. And I can sense that our voices are just getting louder and louder so that we too feel we have lots of options in managing and navigating our menopause after a cancer diagnosis. So rate, review and subscribe. And thank you so much. And I can't wait to see you on the podcast next week. Thank you.